Open up to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, we're going to be reading from verses 30 to 52 this morning. A longer section, and two of these accounts that we're about to read are, are familiar. They're miracles of Jesus. You maybe have heard of them before. And we're going to see in great detail who Jesus is by looking at these two miracles. So we're going to read this account, and then we're going to pray and dive into our teaching this morning. Starting in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure to eat. And they went away into the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Jesus responded, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups in the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, broke the loaves and gave it to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. He saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Let's pray and ask that God would bless us this morning. Almighty God, we know that you're here, we know that you're among us. Jesus, you in fact said that wherever two or three are gathered in your name, you are among them. Well, here we are, and we, we want to hear from you, Lord, we want to hear your word, God, you fed your people manna in the wilderness, and you said that you did it so that they would know that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We need your word. We need it more than we can ever imagine, more than we could ever recognize. It is the sustaining, nourishing, life-giving source that we need to inherit the eternal life that you have for us. Would you speak to us now? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
Up to this point in Jesus' life, rumors are swirling about who he is. Rumors are swirling, and they've actually reached like the upper echelons of society. We read in the story just before the one we just read in Mark chapter 6 that rumors had actually reached Herod Antipas, who was a tetrarch. He was the ruler over an area in Galilee. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 14, we get a little bit of an insight as to who people thought Jesus was. Jesus' name had become known, and you see the rumors begin to swirl. In verse 14, we read that some said that this Jesus was John the Baptist. John the Baptist, Herod, this great tetrarch, this great king, he had beheaded him earlier. And the thought was, well, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. He's done all these miraculous works, and he's going now to come back and exact vengeance on Herod. That was run rumor. One thing people said about who Jesus was. But others said, verse 15, they said, well, maybe this Jesus is Elijah. Elijah the prophet, this Old Testament prophet, he had raised people from the dead in the Old Testament. We saw last week, Jesus did that very thing, didn't he, with Jairus' daughter? So maybe this is Elijah. Maybe he's come back. Maybe he's visited earth. But others were saying, well, maybe, maybe, maybe Jesus is the great prophet promised in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, There were these great prophets like Elijah, like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. But there was one prophet whom God had promised years before through Moses. Moses was this man of God, and thousands of years before, God spoke through Moses and said to the people of God, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Maybe that's who this Jesus is, this greater prophet who would be like Moses himself. Maybe that's Jesus. Jesus just seemed to defy all categories, didn't he? I mean, even today, whether you are a Republican, whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a conservative, a liberal, or a Tory or a Labor Party person, I don't know. (laughs) Whoever you are, Jesus seems to defy your categories, doesn't he? in the things that he taught, in the things that he did, in his mission that he came to accomplish? This is really the perennial question. Who is he if he defies all these categories? If you go on the streets of Denver and you were to ask people, who is Jesus? I guarantee you'd get a range of answers. You'd probably get as many answers as you do people you talk to. You might hear answers that are rooted in rumors. Rumors that were heard secondhand or rumors people heard growing up or rumors people just believe for whatever reason. Maybe they think Jesus was a figure made up in the first century who has been used now throughout time and throughout history to manipulate others. Some people will say, well, he was a man with good morals and special gifts, a symbol of forgiveness and love. Maybe he was a Gandhi-like figure, a teacher of peace, an inspiring person with a message of hope, a spiritual force that embodies the character of God. This is the perennial question, who is Jesus? One historian answering or looking at Jesus, I think hits it right on the nose. He says, what we know about Jesus, not what we don't know. It's not what we don't know about Jesus that makes him so puzzling, but he says, what we know about Jesus is so unlike what we know about anybody else that we are forced to ask, as people evidently did at the time, 
that he existed. Who then is this? Who does Jesus think he is? And who is he in fact? Well, this morning I'm going to do something that I promised myself I would never do. And that is I'm going to start by quoting Nicolas Cage. Okay? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I made the promise to myself, but I had, I had to go back on it. So if you've seen the movie National Treasure, right? Great movie. Yeah, in air quotes. There's this search going on for this long lost treasure, the lost national treasure of the United States. And one of the keys to finding the national treasure is you have to steal the Declaration of Independence and you have to look on the back of it. But if you look on the back of it, on the back on the surface, it just looks like a normal document, right? It's old to be sure, but it's just a, a normal document. But if you look at it with a special pair of lenses, then all of a sudden, this special pair of lenses shows hidden on the back a treasure map that reveals in vivid colors where this national treasure is. Riveting, isn't it? I know, it's a Nicolas Cage movie. <laughs> this morning, as you look at these two miracles of Jesus, right, multiplication of loaves and, and fishes, when you look at Jesus walking on the water on the surface, on the surface, you can see Jesus' power, the power he's demonstrated over and over and over again through the gospel of Mark. But if you see these miracles through the lens of the story of Israel, through the lens of the story of the Old Testament scriptures, the people of God, then something remarkable happens. What you see is that these are not just stories about Jesus' great power. They are that, absolutely. But instead, what you see is that these miracles show us Jesus' identity in vivid color, unlike any other story in the New Testament. So as you look at these stories through the lens of the Old Testament scriptures, we're going to see two things this morning. First, in this first miracle of Jesus, the multiplication of loaves, that first, Jesus is the greater Moses. We're going to see that in verses 30 through 44. And then secondly, we're going to see that Jesus is even greater than that, that Jesus is the great I am. If you're not sure what that means, don't worry, we're going to get there. So looking at these miracles through the lens of the Old Testament scriptures, begin here first, Jesus is the greater Moses. Now you might not be familiar with Moses, that's okay. He's one of the most central, if not the most central figure in the Old Testament. We're introduced to Moses in the book of Exodus, where Israel, the people of God, they've been in captivity, in slavery for over 400 years. And in this context of slavery, God calls Moses specifically to deliver his people out of slavery from Egypt, to set them free from captivity, and to bring them from Egypt through the desert wilderness into the promised land, into a land that was promised by God to Abraham hundreds of years before. And it's during this wilderness trek that Moses receives the commandments of God, the covenant of God. And as a great teacher, he shows them the way of God in the wilderness. That's who Moses is. He's the deliverer, the provider, and the lawgiver of Israel. And as you look at our story this morning, look at Mark chapter 6, you see right off the bat that there are all these allusions to Moses throughout this first miracle. Verse 31, we see Jesus is speaking with his 12 closest followers and he says to them, come, let's go. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Later on, verse 35 and verse 36, 
When it grew late, Jesus is teaching. It's getting late. His disciples come up to him. And at this point, they come up and they say to him, uh, they say to him, verse 35, you, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, verse 35, it's getting late. And he says, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send these people away, go into the surrounding countrysides and villages so that they can buy themselves something to eat. There's nothing to eat here, Jesus. There's no food, no water, no provision. Just as Moses led the people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel, through the desolate desert wilderness, now Jesus, thousands of years later, is bringing his 12 disciples into this desolate place, a place where food, water, and provision are virtually non-existent. And then you see in verse 34, the Old Testament lens of this story comes out in vivid color. Look again with me. Mark writes, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were like sheep without a shepherd. If you were a person who was a Jew during the time that this was written, that phrase would have struck you and your mind immediately would have went back to when Moses was in the wilderness. He had led God's people faithfully through 40 years, through a journey through the desert wilderness. And Moses is about to hand off leadership to the people of Israel. And then it's at that time that Moses cries out to God, God, this is my great concern. Moses says, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as a sheep that have no shepherd. That's Moses' great concern, you see was that God's people, like sheep, would not be abandoned without a leader, would not be left without a shepherd like himself to teach them God's word, to instruct them in God's law, to lead them in God's way, something he had faithfully done. That was Moses' great concern. God, do not let your people be without a shepherd. Otherwise, they're going to be scattered. They're going to go astray. Anybody ever seen the movie Kindergarten Cop? <laughs> All right, I've done two things I promised I would never do. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger is an undercover cop. I know, again, great movie. He's an undercover cop, and he goes into a kindergarten classroom in order to capture this guy who's wanted for murder. And in his first day on the job, he leaves the room for two minutes. And the other teacher says, hey, you know, kindergarten's a lot like the ocean. You should never turn your back on it. And he says, oh, no, the kids are fine. No worries. Well, Arnold Schwarzenegger goes back into the classroom and complete frenzy has undertaken, right? Painting on the walls, flour being poured on one student's head. One student's walking on top of an upright piano. Two others are in a water fight with sponges. It's complete bedlam. I've had a similar experience. Actually, our, our family has similar experiences as these. Hannah one time uh, turned her back on Jane our three-year-old, one of our three-year-old twins. And she hears something going on upstairs, and this is when the girls were trying to be potty trained. She goes upstairs and she finds Jane, not on the toilet, but Jane's going to the bathroom with her whole body in the toilet. <laughs> Hands, feet, buttocks, torso, everything in the toilet. And here she is, smiling from ear to ear, saying, look, I'm a big girl, right? <laughs> 
She's just like her mom. <laughs> Sheep without a shepherd. I'm sorry, Hannah. Sheep without a shepherd. If you turn your back on kids, they're like the ocean, right? Never turn your back on them. That is Moses' great concern. God, don't allow your people to be without a shepherd because eventually what happens to God's people, and we see this throughout the Old Testament, that's Moses' prayer, but eventually the shepherds become more and more scarce and they actually reach this very bleak moment. You hear it in Jeremiah 29, or sorry, Jeremiah 23. These are very sobering words from God. In Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah speaks to the people of God. The Lord is speaking and he, he gives this word to the shepherds of God. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You've scattered my flock. You've driven them away. You've not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. Concerning the prophets, the shepherds of Israel, right? The prophets, the priests, the teachers, the leaders. Concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers because of the curse of the land mourns and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil and their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in the house I have found their evil declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it's going to be well with you. It shall be well with you. And everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster will come upon you. I did not send the prophets yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people. And they would have turned them from their evil way and from the, deed, and from the evil of their deeds. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness. When I did not send them or charge them, so they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. Moses' greatest concern, 900 years later, became a reality. The sheep are scattered. There is no one anymore to teach them God's word, to instruct them in God's law, or to model God's way. The shepherds, the prophets, and priests spoke the teachings of their own mind, the ideas from their own heart. They didn't bring God's word to the people and as a result, the flock was scattered. And it's with this lens, this Old Testament lens, this history of the shepherd of Israel that you can see with great clarity why Jesus had such compassion on this crowd. Verse 34, this crowd, remember who they're ruled by. They're ruled by Herod Antipas. 
This crowd taught by the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 34, Jesus says he has compassion. This deep, visceral empathy and pity for this crowd because they don't have a shepherd. Nobody is looking after them. They've been abandoned by their leaders and teachers. They're instead interested in teaching their own heart, their own mind, their own ideas. Look at Herod. Look at Herod. Herod, following the rumors swirling about who Jesus was, we read that he held this great banquet, invited all these nobles, all these important people, but there's one person getting in his way. It's John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who was a true prophet of God, is telling him, Herod, you have married Philip, your brother's wife, and you are in sin. You are modeling divorce and adultery for the people. That is not how a shepherd should live. Herod, you are condoning lewdness and sensuality and sexual immorality. You're not living as a shepherd should live. At that point, at the banquet, Herod had decided, I'm going to have Herodias, his, his, his wife's daughter, come and give us a lewd sexual dance in order to, you know, please the people who are gathered. John the Baptist said, Herod, repent. That's not how a shepherd of Israel should live. But Herod's response is, I'm going to execute John the Baptist, cut off his head. That's not the way a shepherd is supposed to rule. The sheep, as a result, are scattered. Not just political leaders either. There are also the religious leaders. We're going to see this in more detail next week when Chad teaches from Mark chapter 7. But we see in the Pharisees and the scribes, they're teaching the people of God, but they're more concerned about teaching their traditions, their ideas, their teaching, their rationality, what they think in their heart. They're more concerned about teaching what they think God is like rather than teaching what God said in his word. They would say things, yeah, we know God's word says A, but if you really do B instead, you'll be okay. Trust us, all will be well. Don't worry, walk in ways that are contrary to the Lord, but follow us, follow our traditions. We know the right way. Yeah, God said X, but we know God isn't really concerned about X anymore. That's just a metaphor, that's hyperbolic. So follow Y, follow our tradition instead. And on and on and on this went, this poor leadership. And Jesus calls it what it is. Mark chapter 7, verse 8, he says, You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You are shepherds looking out only for yourself. And as a result, God's sheep are scattered. Today, and I say this in full acknowledgement that I am a flawed shepherd I'm a flawed shepherd. But today, there are also pastors, there are Christian churches, Christian denominations, Christian organizations, anything with Christian in front of it who shepherd in this same way. I was reading the Chicago Sun-Times, looking through different articles, and there was this prominent Chicago pastor, a pastor of a church of over 5,500 pe people. And this article quoted John chapter 14, verse 6, which says from Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And right after that quote, the Chicago Sun-Times asked this pastor, is Christianity the only way to heaven? And this pastor's response was very simple. No. For me, the Christian tradition is the way to understand God and my relationship with the world and other humans in the universe. 
And it's the way for me to move into that relationship. But I'm not to be t about to say what God can and cannot do in other ways and with other spiritual experiences. Leaving the commandments of God and holding to the traditions of men. And others will say similar things. They'll say that there are other ways to know God outside of the Bible, other holy books or opinions or other experiences of God that we can draw on to know God more. They'll say that there's no such thing as heaven or hell. Those things, those are just metaphors. God didn't really mean that there's an eternal destiny for us all. They leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions, the experiences, the thoughts, and the ideas of men. And they say, no disaster will come upon you and God's sheep are scattered. Others like Herod, they, they live double lives, lives that don't reflect on the inside what they appear to show on the outside. Like the prophets and priests of old, they commit adultery and they walk in lies. I was just reminded of this uh, terrible story that came out a couple years ago of this prominent, worldwide known Christian evangelist. Word came out that after dozens of years of faithful ministry or what appeared to be faithful ministry that he had skeletons in his closets of lewd texts and lewd communication with people who were not his wife and affairs outside of those that were proper according to the Bible. And what happened is that person's life came out all at an instant right before his death. And as a result, God's sheep were scattered. This shepherding or lack thereof has a profound negative effect on God's people. One person following this scandal coming out, my heart breaks for this person. They said, I just don't know what to believe anymore. I invested my whole life on the words of a man whose speaking skills far surpassed his own personal character. I don't know what to do. And I think of my own life and ministry, the things I've done, the things I've said, the things I've failed to say, and I thank God there is a greater shepherd who empowers us. By the way, pray for pastors. Pray for shepherds. Pray for people who oversee God's flock so that God's flock will not be scattered. But Jesus, being the great shepherd, seeing this crowd, realizes these people have never been led in the things of God. What does he begin to do? Mark 6, verse 34, Jesus began to teach them many things. He sets the record straight. Praise God. He taught them God's word, taught them God's law, taught them and modeled God's way. He taught them the commandments of God for a change instead of the traditions, the opinions, and the ideas of man. Just as Moses faithfully provided the word of God in the wilderness for God's people, Jesus finally is bringing the truth of God to these people, telling him that he, the good shepherd, is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no life no life in this desert wilderness apart from him. He is the true shepherd of God's flock. He's the greater Moses. And the allusions to Moses, they just continue on in this story. You look at verses 35 through 40. There's this back and forth between Jesus and his disciples. The disciples ask Jesus to send the people away. There's nothing to eat here, Jesus. Let them go. Find something to eat. Jesus responds by saying, no, you feed them. You feed them. You give them something to eat. He says, go look, how many loaves do you have? And they come back, they say, five loaves of bread and two fish. Then in verse 41, 
Jesus performs this miracle. After having them sit in groups by hundreds and by fifties, we read, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Really apart from the lens of this, this Old Testament story of Moses, right? People can turn this story and, and you can find this everywhere. People can read this story and it kind of turns into a moral tale, kind of a moral allegory. Jesus didn't really multiply loaves and fishes. Instead, by sharing the only loaves and fishes that he had, by being generous, what happens is others were motivated to share their loaves and their fishes, and there was an abundance left over. And the moral is, when we share what we have, there's enough for all. You could put that on a bumper sticker, couldn't you? I mean, that's, that's just wonderful. And that's actually a true biblical principle, by the way. It's just not in this text. No, Jesus miraculously multiplies fish and loaf so much so that every disciple walks away with a picnic basket at the end saying, well, I guess we got leftovers, right? This is a literal miracle. And what's wonderful about this is that you can turn this lens of the Old Testament scriptures and point it to the cross of Jesus as well. You know, the next time you hear these words, verse 41, that Jesus took, blessed, broke, and gave, the next time that he did that was on the night that he was betrayed when he took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Moses delivered Israel out of physical bondage in Egypt. Jesus came to give his body to deliver his people from a greater spiritual bondage to sin and Satan, to be the good shepherd who didn't just teach them God's word, but to be the shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep, to give his body, his flesh, so that his people might have eternal life, not just now, but into eternity, a promised land that God says is coming and he will lead us there if we would only trust in Jesus as our shepherd. He's the shepherd who is also the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is who Jesus is. As good as physical bread is here and now, we need to remember we need this spiritual bread. That's what Moses said in the wilderness. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He performed this great miracle in the wilderness where manna came down from heaven every day for the people of Israel so that they could eat and have their fill. And God's response was, I rained the food of angels down from heaven for you to make you remember that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's a good thing to have physical bread here and now, but we need this reminder that we need spiritual bread. We need eternal sustenance because we are eternal spiritual beings. You are not just flesh and bone. You have an eternal soul that will endure on until eternity. And there is no hope of eternal life apart from the bread of life, Jesus Christ. The body of Christ given for us. My family and I, we, we sing this song as our prayers. You know, once, twice, three times a week, we say, be present at our table, Lord. Be here and everywhere adored. 
Your creatures bless and grant that we may feast in paradise with thee. We thank you, Lord, for this our food, but more because of Jesus' blood. Let manna to our souls be given, the bread of life come down from heaven. You can sing that at home with your kids. It goes to the tune of Living on a Prayer by John Bon Jovi. (laughs) It's a good way to spice it up before you eat, right? Jesus is the greater Moses who delivers the people of God laying down his life for the people of God so that they might live eternally with God. And you can see that only through this Old Testament lens. Only through this Old Testament lens. But Jesus is even greater than that. Oh, wow. Moses was a great prophet. He's one of the most central, if not the most central figure in the Old Testament. But Jesus also says that he is the great I am. After Jesus feeds the 5,000, he makes his disciples get back into the boat and they're to go across the lake to this area called Bethsaida. And Jesus stays behind to pray to God. And then the narrative picks up in verse 47. When evening came, the boat was out at sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but he came to them walking on the sea. Oh, sorry. But when he saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. Put yourself in his disciples' shoes, would you? They had seen Jesus heal lepers, but then again, Elisha the prophet in the Old Testament, he'd done that as well. Remember the story of Naaman? That prophet had done that. We've seen Jesus bring a man back to life in Lazarus and bring Jairus' daughter back to life. But then again, Elisha the prophet had done that as well. We've seen Jesus command nature and nature obeys. But then again, Elijah the prophet commanded that there would be a drought over the land. He commanded that it would rain and it rained. So, Elijah had done that as well, but no one, no one, no one had ever walked on water. That miracle was exclusively reserved for God alone. Job chapter 9, verses 8 and 11. Job chapter 9, we read that God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Only God can walk on water. (laughs) That miracle is reserved for him alone. Nobody else can say that they've done that. There's no parallel in the Bible. God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, which means Jesus is not John the Baptist. As Herod thought, Jesus is not Elijah, common belief, During the time, Jesus is not a prophet of old, which is still believed by some today. Jesus is not a greater Moses, as great as that is. But against the lens of the Old Testament story of Israel, it's clear. The rumors are clarified. Jesus is the God of heaven and earth who tramples the waves of the sea. He is God. And this is a lightning rod of controversy throughout Western civilization. You know, That statement, Jesus is the God who stretches out the heavens and tramples the wave of the sea, 
the true and only God, that's always been questioned throughout history. In the first century, it was a man named Marcion. Marcion said, Jesus isn't the God who created heaven and earth. No, Jesus is a new God, kind of a better God than that Old Testament God, but he's a, he's a new God. Second century, it was this man named Theodosius. He said, Jesus isn't the eternal God. Instead, Jesus became God. He kind of lived this godly life. And then at the end of his life, God bestowed this godly title on him. In the fourth century, it was a man named Arius. He said, Jesus isn't God. No, he's just like God. He was the first creation of God. More God than you and me, but not the true eternal God. Today, it's pluralism, secularism. Jesus isn't the God. Instead, he's just a God, right? Or a symbol of God. He's one view of God among many, but we can't know who the true God is or the true way God is supposed to be worshipped. Everyone has their own view and all are equally valid. That is the lightning rod of controversy throughout time. This statement right here that Jesus is God. Today, you know, in kind of our, our pluralistic society, you hear it in this parable. It's called the parable of the elephant. And the story goes like this. God is like an elephant, a large elephant. And all the religions of the world, they're like blind people grasping at this elephant. One person has the trunk, and they say, God is, he's long and smooth, like a long anaconda or a long snake. The other has the tail, and the other's blind as well, grabbing the tail. And they say, no, God is like a short, thin rope, and kind of smells a little bit back here, right? <laughs> Another has this third person, they have the leg, and they say, no, God is tall and strong and mighty like a tree. The other one's kind of feeling the side and says, no, God is broad and thick. Another has the ear and says, no, God is flat and pliable. And the moral of the story is that no one religion can see the whole truth. No one view of God is true. To say Jesus is God is to claim that you see the whole elephant. And we can't really know the true God or the true way to God. So we need to be humble and accept the view of what we think about Jesus is just one of many equally valid truths about God. And to be sure, that sounds humble, that sounds inclusive, that sounds good to say to people who are wrestling in their faith. But let me ask you, how can you know that each blind man only has part of the elephant unless you claim to see the whole elephant? How can you possibly know that no religion sees the full truth about God? Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Hinduism, they're all blind. They're only grabbing parts of God. The only way you can know that is if you were standing outside, could see, and you yourself could see the whole elephant. See, you're claiming to know the whole truth about God, and you're saying Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, Christianity, they are all like blind men grasping at an elephant. As humble as that sounds, friends, that is actually extremely inclusive or exclusive and also very haughty and arrogant to say, I see the whole truth, but you all, you're blind. You only see part of the truth. Mark makes it clear here, and we need to believe this. Jesus is the true God. God alone stretches out the heavens and tramples the waves of the sea. He is not a new God. He has not become God. He is not like God. And he is not merely a God. Mark 6, verse 48, it says, Jesus meant to pass by them. You probably caught that. Led to a lot of confusion. But again, this is a reference back to Job chapter 9. And Job there said, 
very clearly after he says, God alone stretches out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Behold, he passed by me. I see him not. He moves on, but I perceive him not. It's the same Greek word in Job and in Mark. What Job knew of God, but could not see, the disciples saw with their very eyes. They saw God in the flesh trampling on the waves of the sea. How many of us here have ever said, if I could just see God, then I'd believe. Anybody ever prayed that prayer? Okay, I guess I'm the only one. All right. (laughs) God has made himself seen in Jesus of Nazareth. In Jesus, God revealed himself in direct, unequivocal colors. What Job knew but could not see, Jesus made visible and plain. If you want to know God, you can look to Jesus. In Jesus, we know God works miracles, doesn't he? He's a miracle-working God who walks on the sea. In Jesus, we know God invites sinners to himself to be their friends. In Jesus, we know God lays his life down for his sheep as the great shepherd. In Jesus, we know God lovingly provides everything we need for eternal life with him. In Jesus, we know God is willing to take the punishment we deserve upon himself. What a phenomenal God that is. In Jesus, we see God. And to drive this point directly to our hearts, and so Jesus makes the point extremely, unequivocally clear. He says in verse 50, in verse 50, he speaks as the disciples are quaking in terror because they think this is a ghost. They think this is like a God, right? Like Arius thought. A phantom, a spirit, more like God than us, but not really God. But Jesus makes it clear, verse 50, he says, speaking to them, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. It is I. The Greek is ego emi. Ego emi, the name God gave himself when he spoke to Moses through the burning bush all the way back 1,400 years before Jesus even existed, God spoke to Moses and said, I am. Ego emi. And Moses, he, he's thrown back by this. He says, well, if I go to Pharaoh and I tell him, let me deliver my people Let my people go. What am I going to say to the people of Israel? How are they going to know who sent me? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I am. This is God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The God who stretches out the heavens and tramples on the seas. And I love this. When the disciples hear that, Take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. Finally, they get it. Kind of. (laughs) You read verses 51 and 52. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. See, they didn't understand when Jesus multiplied the loaves. They thought, yeah, Jesus is just a great miracle worker. Maybe John the Baptist, maybe he is Elijah, maybe he is a prophet. Because those guys did these kinds of things before. 
But when Jesus speaks and tramples on the waves of the sea, they are clear, this is the great I am. This is God. And maybe for the first time in their life, they were not afraid. They were not afraid. Take heart, I am, do not be afraid. The great I am entered the boat with these disciples. My son Eli, he is terrified sometimes after we read books. And we read this book one time. I don't even remember what the book was. It was actually, you know, one of those you get at like the Scholastic Book Fair. It wasn't even scary, but it was one that had robbers in it. And I think actually, if I remember the story, the robbers get stopped by this dog who has very bad breath. We have a dog now, so he's not as scared. But he was a very afraid of robbers. So sometimes he'd wake up and he'd be terrified that robbers were going to break into the house. And I would go to him and I would say what Jesus would say to him or what any parent would say to him. It's okay. Take heart. I'm here. I'm here. Do not be afraid. I'm here. Dad's here with you. And Jesus, or Eli replies, well, what if the robber is bigger than you? (laughs) Fair enough, son. (laughs) But you know who's greater than any robber? You know who's greater than even the great Moses of the Old Testament? You know who's greater than any shepherd? You know who's great enough to lay down his life for the sheep? You know who is the great I am? Jesus of Nazareth. And if the great I am would become the Lamb of God to take away your sin, then friends, what is there to fear? Neither height nor depth can separate us. Hell and death cannot defeat us. The great I am is with us. The greater Moses, the great I am, the Lord and shepherd of Israel. That's Jesus of Nazareth. That's who he is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the great shepherd, the greater Moses, the one who lays down his life for his sheep, who tenderly calls us back to himself time and time again without number, who shepherds us, who provides for us, who cares for us. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you for who you are. You are the true and better Moses. But you are also the great I am. You are the great God of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The one who reigns and rules, who stretched out the heavens and tramples the waves of the sea. Oh, Jesus, that's who you are. Would you give us a fuller and greater picture of who you are, Jesus? Would that be impressed upon our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our wills as we seek to obey you and follow you and bring our sin to you time and time again? Jesus, We worship you, we adore you, and we thank you. We pray this all in your name. Amen.